Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 45. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to talk about how our draft week went, thank our patrons, card of the week, seven-win run breakdown, our main topic, blocking to win, and we're going to re- review some of the previews for the new set coming up next month. So to begin, Hats, how was your draft week? Uh, hello there. Uh, it was pretty good. Um, I'm, I'm feeling pretty okay and calm about my eternal card game experience lately. Uh, I'm playing a lot less than I was for the last couple of months, uh, but I'm enjoying the games that I'm playing more, I would say. And and maybe that's because uh, I'm mostly sticking to the to the resolution I made not to worry about my rank or where I end up, uh, but just to uh, enjoy draft for, for what it is again. And uh, also I'm playing less because this particular limited format has been going on a while and... I, I'm not quite as compelled to explore it as I was, so I'm glad that there's a new set coming out. So there will be there will be a whole new environment to, and, and I can poke at the corners and and play and 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 make guesses, and be wrong, and all of that stuff that comes with a whole new set of 200 cards. So yeah. I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, I'm doing good. I've been bounce. Uh, uh, I've been bouncing around in the top of the rankings so far this month and that's a result of me not caring uh, about the rankings <laughs> it's that i just get in there and play and it's it's fine yeah uh, uh worry about let other people worry about the competitiveness uh i'm doing okay yeah yeah how was cool. your draft week mine's been uh pretty good i finally uh pushed to to draft masters got into the top 100 Nice. I've been kind of mixing it up. I've been playing a little bit more constructed recently. And I also, like I mentioned uh, last time we talked, I think I joined into league this month. I played, you know, I played week one. I played all 10 of my games and went nine and one. And then in week two, I lost my first two games and was like, ah, screw this. Yeah. <laughs> but then um, we done forever. <laughs> Week three, I opened up a, a couple good cards for my deck, and I played a game and won. And then I was like, oh, let me finish my week three games, or week two and three games. But by the time I did that, it was already week four. But I got a couple more good cards for my deck. So um, then I went on, a, I think, an eight-game winning streak. So that felt pretty good with my deck. But then I lost two games in a row again. So I was like, oh, screw it. Screw yeah. the league. Yeah. <laughs> League is a great mode when you're winning. <laughs> yeah. And just I actually, miserable. I, it's, it is so amazing how people consistently go like 35 and 5 and stuff. I yeah. just I just don't understand. Like, how do you not get like, I think I have a pretty good deck, but there are just going to be games where my opponent does something that I can't beat. And I right. feel like there's going to be more than five of those games <laughs> in 40 games. I don't know. It's a it's its own skill. It's different from draft. Uh, it's related but different. And um, I don't have it. I'm really uncomfortable playing league for that reason. Is that I don't feel like I 
I really have the skills to consistently do well at it. Um, because you're really just stuck with the cards you have and making the most out of a out of out of uh, a pool of cards that you had no choice in whatsoever is to me a lot harder than draft. Yeah. So it would be something that I would have to like learn as its own skill and I just haven't wanted to put the work in. So I just haven't played league in a couple of months because it was consistently frustrating for me. Not that I had a terrible record every month. I usually would get like 66% of my games or close to it, but I I wasn't really enjoying it, so I, I definitely pulled back on it. Because uh, yeah. I'm not going to use any card back other than the Direwolf card back anyway, so <laughs> I really don't care. Yeah, I know, and I don't need the packs. I, I agree. I think it's, for me, it's not it's not worth it either. And I think, I think part of my problem is my last two times I've played League, I've made pretty aggressive decks that just can get, like, hard countered against the wrong opponent. Especially in this format, I'm a Praxis deck, but if your opponent plays two Cambrai Longhorns in a row against you, you're just like, oh, well, I can make it through the first 3-3, three, three, but the second one is pretty tough. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> yeah. And then they and then they follow up with like a Grodas Favored a little while later, and you're like, oh, huh, interesting. So maybe it's just the style of decks that I've been making that are... are conducive to like these feel you know they win a lot but then they're just like some decks you like literally can't beat no matter how well you play and so maybe that's part of my frustration yeah it feels a little predetermined sometimes i don't know Uh, but it can't be that predetermined because some people like do just so consistently well so i haven't figured it out moving on to thanking our patrons every week we thank everyone who's decided to contribute to this show. We are obviously a, a free-to-listen-to podcast, but some people do, through their generosity, uh, decide to donate to the show. So we do have a, Patre- a Patreon at patreon.com slash farmingeternal. And we have two stretch goals. One is a live show at $50, and also we're raffling off coaching sessions with hats if we reach $75. And we've had two new patrons this week. So thank you to clinical cynic and meagles for joining on to the patreon which means we are dangerously close to our live show we are just two dollars Dangerous. short dangerously close dangerously close teetering on the edge to, <laughs> to hear this unedited version of our show. drunkenly teetering <laughs> so we just need two more people at a dollar a month or maybe one more person at two dollars a month and we're done. We're, our hands will be forced, hats. So finally, we'd also <laughs> like to thank all of our the continued support from our veteran patrons: Madness, Big Salty, Titus and Blossom, Parmalee, Darth Herman Two, Twin Hex, Cassandra, Jed the Hammered, Raven Dragon, Esrits Zero Two One Five, Sunblaze, Work Done Sun, and Yist Out. Thank you again for helping keeping this show running. Okay, so on to card of the week. What's your card of the week? My card of the week is Wretched Talon. Wretched Talon is not a new card. It's not part of the Flames of Salt expansion, but I think it's uh, kind of interesting in this particular format in a very narrow case, which I guess I'll talk about now. So Wretched Talon is it's a relic weapon. It costs five double shadow. Uh, it's a 3-3 three, three relic weapon, and it has an onslaught trigger, which means if any of your units have attacked this turn, uh, it plays a 1-1 spider with deadly and 
I had this has always been a pretty good card, and I think it's interesting that it feels like such a good card to me because a three three weapon without the onslaught trigger of playing a deadly spider is pretty marginal, and that card has existed before. Um, there was a there was a justice version of the card with warp, and I usually avoided that card. That it was in the last draft format. Mm-hmm. I think it didn't feel strong, um, and the three four weapon in justice. Uh, now it's not one of the boosted cards in the curated packs, but it's still there, and it gets cut from decks a lot of the time. Uh, it's uh, and and it's got better stats than Wretched Talon, but Wretched Talon feels great. I'm always happy to see it as if I'm likely to be playing Shadow, and I'll take it over a lot of things if it comes up early in a pack. And then uh, in a deck that I had the other day, which was basically a Feln mill deck. You know, some ravens, um, a little bit of removal, some defensive cards. Uh, Wretched Talon was terrific because I kept on coming up against opponents with exalted cards. They would have fervent siphoners or ardent converts or whatever. And Wretched Talon, and I would attack in the air with a Wretched Raven, and then I would summon the Wretched Talon, make my deadly spider, kill their exalted critter. And then the weapon would have to go on something else that now could not attack because I have a deadly spider. And it was like a, just a very neat way of getting rid of exalted enemies mm-hmm. and, and, then, and then in one card killing an exalted enemy and then dealing with the, uh, the, the unit that gets the weapon efficiently. Because that's a, always a challenge in this format is that you find a way to kill an exalted unit and now you've got to deal with this thing with a weapon on it. And Wretched Talon just takes care of it all by itself. In a lot of situations, obviously not every situation, but it feels like it's stronger in this format than it was in the last one for that reason, because exalted is just this constant presence something that you have to deal with obviously this doesn't deal with long tail cavalry at all but other exalted creatures it does yeah it's amazing how much that onslaught trigger sort of bumps up this weapon because i have heard like you said a lot of people talk about how the three four justice weapon has gone down in this format and like people it's just not as good um yeah and i I agree (laughs) it doesn't feel good to play that thing yeah. It feels like a super inefficient way of dealing with a medium-sized unit, and then it rarely kills more than one thing. Yeah. And your sort of exalted example, actually, I think is a really good example. Why? Because like in that situation, you could never get a two-for-one right. with, with that weapon. But like this, you know... With your current scenario, you know you could still possibly you could possibly get a three for one with your wretched talon because a lot of those exalted units are very small. Yeah. Um, so, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. It's just an interesting little. Uh, uh, it's just an interesting example of how a, a card can function differently uh, depending on the environment that it's in. So, uh, what's your card of the week? Yeah, my my card is this uh, little-known card in the format, uh, Grodov's Favored, which is oh. a 6 times 6 5 giant whose summon ability is you may silence another unit. And that sounds like it has potential. Not that I've seen that very often in this format. How do you, how has it been how has it been working for you? I can't sustain this. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on Grodov's Favored? You know, the reason I wanted to talk about Grodov's favor was to sort of make a larger point. 
where I've just recently, maybe even not recently, people complaining about this format and mostly blaming all of their bad feelings about this format on Grodov's Favored. And I feel like this format's getting a little maligned because people don't like Grodov's Favored. And I've, it feels a little unfair. And I know you've kind of mentioned before that you thought Grodov's Favor was sort of an egregious card. Yeah, I, I've softened on it, though, honestly. I was thinking about Grodov's Favorite earlier today before I even knew that you were going to pick it. And I was thinking, you know, it's not as oppressive as I thought it was. Like, there's no question that it's a good card, but it doesn't f- feel as bad to me getting Gro- getting something Grodov's Favorite as it did back when I was coming to grips with the format. And I have the same feeling. And I feel like people disliking this format because of Grodov's Favorite, I think... I don't mean I mean this is probably not true and I'm speaking in generalities but it feels to me like part of it is just them not playing enough of the format and this is not you know like Grodow's favor is not an unbeatable card and I think Grodow's favor does a lot of positive things for this format it makes this format a lot less bomb heavy and I I think I talked about this once before on the podcast, but the fact that it's a single time makes it a very splashable card, Mm -hmm. which means it gives a lot of different decks access to a way to like deal with a problematic permanent and stall the game to enact its game plan, which I think is like a good thing. If only time decks had this card, I think it would be a lot more obnoxious because time decks would be over and above the best decks in the format. But the fact that sort of any deck can splash a Grodos favored also means now as the format develops, you see fewer and fewer decks that have two or three of these because people are yeah. realizing that they can splash them. Yeah, it was really weird at the be- we talked about this, but at the- it was really weird at the beginning of the new format after they flipped the order of the packs because people were getting stuck in their uh, in their factions early on, and because time was sort of dodgy in the first pack, they just wouldn't pick up Grodos favorites, and you would see a ton of them. Uh, and c- clearly, people have have figured out how to start uh, how to start drafting them again, no matter what deck they're in. Because, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I've rarely seen more than two now, If I'm even if I'm drafting Combray. And I guess that's also part of my point. If you have a Combray deck without a Grodos Favored, obviously you would wish you had a Grodos Favored for that deck. But, like, you can have perfectly fine, perfectly winnable decks without Grodos Favored. It's not like the end-all, be-all card. And it's just, it's, I feel like it's a very superficial take to make to make it seem like a format could be ruined by... A card on Grodov's favored power level. I don't think people are com- are complaining about. I don't think people ever complained about Archive Curator to the same degree. And Archive Curator has an identical ability, yeah. and so I think really it comes down to the fact that Grodov's favorite is overstated. Um, and like I, I was thinking about, uh, there's a card called Meteor Golem, I think, in Magic: The Gathering. It's yes. sort of part of the core set. You know Meteor Golem. Yeah, it's, I think it costs seven. It's a 3-3, three, three, and it destroys basically any other permanent that's not mm-hmm. land when it comes into play. Uh, and it's colorless. You can play it in any deck. And I don't think anyone would complain that that card is... like compl- No one would complain about the fo- a format that included that card because it comes down, it does its damage, it's very versatile, any deck can play it. It serves a similar function to Grodos Favored, but then it's not also it can't also win the game by itself because it's not that huge. Uh Grodos Favored can 
often win the game by itself or 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 just destroy your opponent's defense by itself after it after it deals with uh the, the greatest threat that you're facing and so i do think that they put the stats too high on it for what it is i don't think that means it ruins the format i feel i don't feel that way about it but i don't feel like it's costed appropriately i mean i think it's costed to be a very good card but i don't think you could lower the stats that much and it would be anywhere close to as good do you know like no. this card at a four four i i don't think is there's i think it's of, now worse than archive curator because a lot of stages between six five and four four though where yeah they no, i know i just it, i was know? giving sort of like a, a definite lower bound in my example you know what i mean sure. yes obviously there's you know that's a you know, that's a minus two, minus one, stat minus or whatever. But, you know, I'm not saying it's an unplayable card as a six cost four, four, but like, it's not, it's, I think it's really hard to play a six cost card that doesn't help. St- I mean, I don't know. It's still a fine, it's, it would still be a good card, but I guess it just wouldn't be a stabilizing card. And so it's not, that wouldn't be a card. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, I mean, that's, uh, I, I, like, if you sort of, like, didn't know that the card ever existed as a 6-5, and it was just, like, like let's say it was a 5-4, which is my guess for how it would be appropriately costed, because uh, then it would still attack well into anything, uh, <laughs> basically anything in the format, um, but you could double block it a lot more effectively with some things. You could block it with like a four, four, which seems appropriate considering Grodov's favorites power level. Just, I feel like that would, it would still be a card that you would take over almost anything, but then it wouldn't just dominate every game that you, that you summoned it in. Um, I'm not saying that it was bad for the format necessarily. I think you're right about all of that, about how it's good to have a card that can keep any single strategy from running away with the game. But I don't think a counter strategy should run away with the game itself in general. Yeah, Like, like this should be a defensive card, and it's an extremely offensive card. Yeah, I guess I was just getting frustrated about people complaining about the format and just because there's, like, one card that they don't like. Because it was very similar to set 6.5, where people were just like, oh, this format's stupid because there's no limits to what colors you can play. And it's just like, they shouldn't have added strangers back in. Now it's an unplayable, unfun format. And it's just like, I don't know, it was kind of fun for what it was. You got to try different strategies, and I feel like the same with this format. It's not like anything but a Grodov favor deck is unplayable, and it's just it's a thing to keep in mind. But I think it's also a good check on the format. And I'm, you could not like the format, but that's more on you than the format. I think. Yeah, oh, I agree with that. I I generally do like the format, and I don't think that Grodov's favored ruins it. But I do think that it would be a superior format if they took a couple of stat stat points off of Grodos favored because mm-hmm. that's but that's you know you can do a lot of little tweaks to make a format as good as it can be and yeah. more balanced than it is because i would say longhorn is like a more egregious card almost sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's partly just because of the way the whole thing is set up where uh long uh, longhorn and acclaimed artisan aren't really splashable cards the same way that that for example champion grappler is yeah and therefore if you are 
in the lane where you get longhorns or acclaimed artisans, you end up with a lot of them. And so those decks are so going into those decks is very swingy, where the more of that two drop that you get, the better your deck is. And that's entirely up to chance. Yeah. Uh, that's unhealthy. I don't think that the um, I don't know exactly what the solution is to really strong dual faction two drops. But I know I don't like the way that Longhorns and Acclaimed Artisans operate right now in the draft. Yeah. And I think part of it is like with Longhorn is because it's specifically in Combray, it makes it hard for you to go under Combray decks and kill them before they can start playing Grodas Favored. And I feel like Grodas Favored is at its worst and most menacing in Combray decks. And, yeah, uh, people have used up all their resources dealing with your two power three threes, and now you have a six five. Yeah, yeah, that killed your flyer, which was your only way to win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, anyway, so that's I just wanted to talk. Obviously, everyone knows Gordas favorite if you've played any of this draft format. But I think I think this card is a, a, like I said, a little bit misaligned. It's not. I don't think it's as bad or as unhealthy for this format as people make it out to be. Even if it's a little frustrating to lose to sometimes. And uh, I'm glad to know you agree with me. Yes, in every, yes, in every way. <laughs> that's that's where we landed, right? Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. All right, so now on to our seven-win run breakdown. So this is our long-standing data collection project here at Farming Our Journal, where we collect listeners' seven-win drafts, either at farmingeternal at gmail.com or our seven-win channel on our Discord, where you can find a link to in our the notes wherever you get this podcast. And we accept these deck lists, either in exported form or any kind of Eternal Warcry link. And then we take all of this information, we put it into some spreadsheets and pass along the information, whatever it tells us, sort of like what factions are doing well, what cards are doing well. And you can find links to those spreadsheets, again, in the show notes or in our Discord. And as always, I'd like to thank John Holio for actually being the one who enters all these lists. So thank you, John. And we have a big, uh, uh, quite a few <laughs> lists this week, mostly because uh, we missed recording last week. So we have two weeks worth of names here. So buckle in. Uh, so new contributors this week are Brantar, D-Dub, Flamescar, Forest Bates, Grandar, Grandmasterson, Probably Red, Stormy T, Swedish Sean. And then our veteran contributors, A-Boss, Agent Dynamo, Ant-Man Rising, Apricot Knight, Avgots, Beard Broken, Ben Gracer, Celtic Guardian 7, Collector, Colton S, Damien, Darth Herman 2, Dubes, Gato Sujo, Gothic Mike, Hats on Lamps, Hot Nickelball, Jedi EJ, Jed the Homerid, Jose Carlos 2121, Cassendrath, Quickie Mart, Madness, Mancio 1982, Mark E, Mercurio Blue, Another Ship, out on a Limb, Parmalee, Patomaru, Raven Drag, Rofer, Rokoku, Sleffer 13, SSJ 1997, Spiffy Man, Sunblaze, Tempest Dragon King, Titus and Blossom, Vader, and X1550. Man, another ship's dad needs to get in shape. What is he doing? Yeah, I hope he hasn't moved on from this game. He was really winning. Hope he hasn't moved to Runeterra. <laughs> <laughs> so... On to the main topic, Hats. What would you like to talk about this week? Well, I'd like to talk about blocking. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but way back when I did my first 
appearance on this podcast, I talked about attacking and how people were maybe not doing enough of it. And since then, I've been teased quite a bit about how... Uh, yeah, for how walking you back be... every single point you made in that episode. For, well, for that, yeah. But I think really the heart of what I was trying to say was always uh, that pe- that I was observing people not attacking when it would be an advantage for them to do so. So really the point isn't so much, hey, attack all the time, uh, as it is attack when it's right. Because sometimes people weren't attacking when it was right, because they're afraid to attack and lose their units. Uh, because the sort of uh, because of a worst case scenario uh, mentality, and I stand by that. Uh, I still think people don't attack as much as they can sometimes uh, because they're risk averse and it loses them games. But on the flip side of that, I have also noticed that many times people will not block correctly due to what I'm guessing is the same sort of risk averse mindset. Um, and I was kind of inspired by uh, to talk about this a little bit because of that same deck that I was talking about earlier, which was a, a Feln mill deck. It had three Wretched Ravens, and it had two Fearstoker Ravens. Uh, the Wretched Ravens mill your opponent, and the Fearstoker Ravens grow when you do. It wasn't a very strong deck. I didn't have a lot of the cards that you want for that. It didn't have enough removal. So a lot of times I found myself essentially racing my opponent to mill them out completely before they did enough damage to kill me and in order to do that because i didn't have a lot of powerful cards and i didn't have enough removal i would have to block very judiciously and block as though i was protecting a a a specific amount of my life with each block or blocking to uh to advance a long-term game plan where i knew i had to make a certain number of attacks to win in the air usually um and keep them from winning keep my opponent from winning before I did that so I had to I did a lot of blocking that I think I wouldn't have done if that wasn't my overall game plan because if if my if my goals were to keep my units alive and establish a board presence then I wouldn't have blocked the way I did because it was I was running the risk of losing units to tricks and removal Uh, and maybe I can be more specific about this later but just sort of in general uh, I was making blocks that I the, of a kind that I don't normally see people make, and but they were correct. So I just wanted to talk about blocking in 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 some situations uh, when it's part of your plan to win the game rather than just to avoid dying. Uh, mm-hmm. So I called the so I called this topic blocking to win. Uh, so I guess I wanted to get back to like a basic concept. I don't know when the last time is you talked about uh, this or or if it was ever a topic of discussion on the podcast, but uh, there's a concept that, uh, like, way back from, like, limited uh, Magic the Gathering play, uh, just, and I guess really just any card game, actually, which is uh, deciding who is the beatdown. Because uh, whenever you've got a two-player card game in this style, one person is usually the beatdown and one person is the control. And a lot of the overall strategy in any given game of limited is knowing when you're the beatdown and when you're the control because it's not always clear a lot of the time one person is attacking with units and trying to end the game as quickly as possible and then the other person is trying to stabilize the board not lose to their opponent's damage uh, and then turn around the game so that they become the beatdown most of the time that's how the game should be one person is the aggressor and the other person is trying to stabilize sometimes you're racing because you think that 
um, you can do more damage uh, to your opponent. Uh, you can kill them before they can kill you. But I think that racing situations come up a lot in games, uh, and they shouldn't very often. Because what it means is that both players think that they can do lethal damage first. And because of the rules of the game, one of, one of them's wrong. <laughs> one of them is not going to do that. <laughs> one of them is right, and one of them is wrong. Uh, there are, of course, situations where you have the, where they're the best thing that you can do, where you can't mount a defense against your opponent. And so the best thing you can do is do some damage with your units and hope to draw something that will push the race in your favor. But I think most of the time when two players are racing to do 25 damage, uh, one of them has not correctly assessed the situation and thinks they're the beatdown when they're not. I think this happens all the time, actually. I've, I've, I'm often baffled by my opponent's attacks because I'll be acting very aggressively and my opponent will be attacking me back and not leaving back blockers. And then the trick that I have in my hand, which is the reason why I'm attacking so aggressively, because I know that I can get lethal damage in if I get them down to a certain life total, will come into play and they'll be totally unprepared because they thought they were the aggressor. And it's happened to me as well, although I've gotten a lot better at going... Uh, hey, they've been attacking me a lot, and it does not make sense unless they have something good in their hand that can finish this game. And nine times out of ten, they have that, you know? And if mm -hmm. I'm leaving back, if it's something like Storm of Feathers, which is the three double justice spell that stuns two opposing, opposing units, and it also has a decimate ability to, to gain four um, armor, but the main thing is the stunning, if they've got that, that can that is a huge swing. And it's not a common card. You don't see it in every game. But it's so effective when it's played at the right time that it's that if your opponent is justice and they're acting real weird over there, like they're making attacks that don't make sense and they don't have a fast spell, uh, you probably want to at least consider that they've got Storm of Feathers and maybe leave one more blocker back to keep them from just outright killing you in a turn. Um the the game I'm, I rarely regret leave, uh, playing a little cautiously if my opponent is is playing that way, uh, so it's just sort of a a little edge you can have that goes into the overall theme of respecting your opponent's choices and saying you know they're probably doing what they're doing for a reason. The storm of feathers example is really interesting to me because that is. I think one of these subtle things that might be lost a little bit on me, and I think part of the reason is because Storm of Feathers feels so hard. You know, the, the stun two unit effects in this game just feel so powerful that oftentimes it feels like if your opponent is playing aggressively because they have that, it's really hard to defend against anyway. And so I often don't really change how I play in the face of that, but maybe that is me not, maybe my, the point is I should be thinking about that card earlier and sort of take this into account and realize earlier that they might have storm of feathers and not just like on one turn, the, the turn I realize that they could kill me if I don't keep one thing back, but yeah. like a couple turns beforehand, take the foot off the gas. And so there's, they're not in a situation where storm of feathers can blow me out right if you can afford to ask the question like let's say they have storm of feathers or something similar in their hand 
and then just ask yourself, is this going to affect the way I, I play here? Like if I'm in a, if I have the advantage on this board, but they can kill me if they have Storm of Feathers, is it better to just attack with like my Marsh Dragon twice instead of attacking with everything now? You know, like, mm -hmm. is that a, is, is that going to affect, like, it doesn't have to necessarily change the way you play. It might not. Like if they, if you, if you have them on Storm of Feathers and, like that's gonna, they're gonna get you with it no matter what. Then it doesn't change the way that you play. But there are situations where where it does. Um, and some, and I've and I've had games and I've observed games on stream uh, where it doesn't cost you anything to play more defensively. But because our tendency is to just play the turn that we're in and not look at the turn, uh, the next turn or what our opponent's response is. Um, but just to play the best, like the tightest strategy on this turn that we can. Sometimes we overlook uh, the long-reaching consequences of that, and sometimes that's just like you know, like Storm of Feathers might not outright kill you, but it will allow your opponent to get you down to a life total where now you don't have any choices and you have to be defensive. You know, uh, in general, you want to keep your choices open and close down choices for your opponent because storm of feathers is a terrible card if your opponent can't get you within lethal damage range but you can yourself open yourself up to storm of feathers being a great card if you play in a way where you're not respecting how aggressive your opponent is being so yeah. it's just a thing to think about sometimes because it's probably not storm of feathers right it's probably draw strength or something you know but but, but i get uh but it could be anything it, your opponent always has a plan, you know, and so it's worth asking yourself, is your opponent's plan better than mine? And if they're attacking when it seems like they shouldn't be attacking, they're almost certainly planning to do something. And your job as a good, uh, experienced draft player is to figure out what that is or a range of what those things might be that they might be planning to do and ask yourself if being aggressive is worth the consequences of whatever your opponent is, is, is going to do to you. Yeah, I wonder if this is one of the reasons why I like drafting aggressive decks is because I like forcing my opponent to figure out mm -hmm. if they're the beatdown or the control, and I find that a lot, a lot easier than drafting decks where it's a little more ambiguous for myself. Sure. Um, because, you know, sometimes you're wrong and you are not the beatdown, but I like having decks where more often I'm the beatdown and it's my opponent who's confused about that. Sure. Uh, yeah, and absolutely. That's a, I mean, it's a valid thing to force your opponent to make the hard decisions, too. Um, it's one of the big advantages of playing an aggressive deck is that your opponent has to make most of the hard decisions. Although it's not easy to play aggro correctly, but um, but you do get to cut down your opponent's options, and that's one of the good things about doing it. You know, sometimes you don't get to play aggro, and then you're going to have to be in that ambiguous situation. And it's good to have, uh, it's good to be comfortable in the ambiguity and to say, mm -hmm. you know what, it's not my opponents. This is another concept is that you're uh, from Magic: The Gathering is when people were playing control, their opponents would call their hand like a black box where they just it seemed like the, their control opponent just had all the answers all the time. But it's not true. They have the number of cards in their hand that it looks like they have, and each one of their, those cards only does one thing, unless it's you know one of those stupid blue cards that does like three things. <laughs> but it's still like it's still limited what they're capable of doing 
and uh, and you can figure out a range of what they're capable of doing, um, but it's that means you're making guesses about a range of possible things that they might have in their hand, which is difficult. It's something that you have to get used to and comfortable with. Um, but it's a skill that you can develop. It's not just a unknowable black box over there. Even with all of the cards that they could possibly have in their hand, there's only a, a small range of possible effects that they can realistically have mm-hmm. with a few like rare awful cards like Barricade that could just totally destroy your day because their their power level is uh, is outside of that range. Um, and there's not really that much you can do about that kind of thing but can deal with a more limited range of, uh, of possible things that your opponent can do and, and sort of prepare to it for it to a certain degree. It's just a, you know, it's just a skill like any other skill, but it's a fairly high level skill. I think it's one of the things that separates the really great tactical players in limited from, from the rest of us is that they have a really good sense for this kind of thing and what you might have in your hand. And they're very yeah. good at playing around it and they're very good at knowing when they need to defend and when to attack. Uh, so I had I had that one game. I, so I had that one um, draft on stream. Posted it in our Discord, and uh, and the Honorable Ben Gracier commented on it. I call him the Honorable Ben Gracier, of course, because he's a judge. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like the appropriate title for some reason. <laughs> but he commented on it mainly saying he said a few things. You know, he had a very detailed comment, but he uh, he commented partly on why I wasn't attacking with the deck that I won with. It was a seven zero deck. It was a very like the card quality and it was very high. And there were a lot of situations where it seemed like I should be attacking. And I realized looking back at those games that I really didn't think that I should be attacking in those situations but if i were looking at each turn as though it was an individual turn that i was getting the maximum value out of i certainly would have been attacking but i was looking at the game as a whole and and realizing that uh there was no need for me to overcommit my resources against opponents who were almost all more aggressive than me i was playing around the possibility that they would have things like storm of feathers or draw strength or whatever the kind of things that swing board states by by committing minimally to my attacks um and that was just the part of the way that i was playing those games because my deck supported that that's my thoughts on who's the beatdown, more or less uh it's a good thing to be aware of because uh, there's a time in almost every game where that flips you know someone starts out aggressive and then the other person tries to stop them and figuring out oh hey I did it. I stabilized. Now I can start attacking. That's another thing to um, to to be aware of. It's a real, that's a it's a real good skill to 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 know the exact turn when you can start attacking again and not like wait a couple of turns because you're used to defending. There's a time when you're, it's like, oh, I I'm I'm the aggressor now because they can't attack me anymore and I can now start doing damage. I did it. You know, like knowing when that is good is a good thing to be aware of. That's another sort of like medium high level uh, skill that is is good to develop because it's not always obvious. Yeah. And it's also very tough when you've stabilized on a low life total. It's very tricky because there are a number of cards that can blow you out in both directions if you give them time to draw a card that kills you you're dead but if you overcommit, they have fewer cards to draw but you brought in the range of cards that can kill you mm-hmm. and finding that balance i think can be very tricky it's like do you 
keep holding back so the only card that can kill you is a top deck reconnaissance or do you start attacking more aggressively but now a reconnaissance and a storm of feathers or whatever could kill you yeah right exactly yeah uh i mean there's always going to be a certain amount of risk and it helps in those situations to sort of know your deck and to know uh if you're actually likely to draw something that will improve your situation or if like the best chance you have is to just start attacking with your flyer and hope they don't draw anything because you're not likely to draw anything that gets you out of this mess Mm -hmm. um that's that's a that's got to be a big factor because you don't know what's in your opponent's deck they might not have a reconnaissance at all um they they might not have no hope of drawing one, and the only way that they can win is that they have you know jump kick in their deck, and you attack with your flyer. It's it's always it's always a judgment call. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you had some specific examples of I do blocking to win. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This will ground things a little bit because this has all been fairly abstract. Um. So so imagine the following. You have a cinder dragon on your side. It's a four four flyer. You have a sunset priest only because it's a 3-3. And your opponent has a Grodov's Favored, which was your card of the week. It's a 6-5. Whatever damage it's done as far as silencing things is done. It doesn't get to do that again. Let's say the Sunset Priest is silenced, and it's a vanilla 3-3 now. Let's start over. <laughs> no, it's fine. Okay, so you have a Cinder Dragon and a Sunset Priest. Your opponent has a Grodov's Favored. Your opponent has 8 life. You have 6 life, which means that a single attack from the Grodov's Favored unblocked will kill you. So what is the best play here if there's no other cards in anyone's hand and nothing relevant in the void or anything like that? It's to attack with the Cinder Dragon so that you can kill them in two turns and then chump block the Grodov's favored, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, this is a fairly simple example. What's slightly complicated about it is that this is a risky play because if they do draw removal for your Sunset Priest, then you die. And if you left your Cinder Dragon back, you could double block their Grodov's favorite if they attacked. They would kill your Cinder Dragon, uh, but your Sunset Priest would live. And then you would hope to be able to attack three times and win without them drawing anything. But I agree, it's better to just attack with the Cinder Dragon and force them to draw something in this situation. Because right now, with this board state, with no other factors, uh, you get to win the game that way. So, uh, so a more complicated version of the same thing, you have a Dread Hellkite which is a 4-3 that it can't block. So double blocking with it isn't an option. You have a Sunset Priest, which is a 3-3. You have a Bannerman, which is a 2-2. And your opponent has a Grodov's Favored. This time they're at 12 life, which means it would take three attacks with a Dread Hellkite to win. But you're still at six life, so an unblocked Grodov's Favored will kill you in one hit. You attack with Hellkite. You notice they have a fast spell, but they don't cast it. On their turn, they attack with Grodov's Favored. So how do you block? In this example, part of what would change my opinion is what their other faction was. Sure. Let's say it's Justice uh, and and they don't have any fire influence available, so they don't have any way of giving Overwhelm to their unit. I mean, unless they have Omri's Choice, that's always an issue. But Omri's Choice, you're, you're... Yeah, way. you're just dead anyway, and also they didn't cast it on the Dread Hellcut. Like the forget forget the possibility of Armory's choice. They win if they have it. Okay, so I guess what you're saying is this should be a chump block situation again because if the fast spell is a draw strength or something, then they're killing both of your chump blockers, and then you're dead on the next turn. 
So you you're chump blocking in order to live as long as possible because you do you know you have a three turn or two turn clock now. Right. That is the the point that I'm making. But this is the point of complexity in these kind of board situations where I see people start making mistakes. Mm -hmm. Because they're like that Grotos favorite is going to kill me. So I so I have to double block it and make them have the trick. Like maybe it's not going to maybe the trick is not going to like wreck me uh, or maybe I'll draw another blocker. But I've got to take the chance and double block and try to kill the thing because maybe they can kill my unit. You know, they sort of get in their heads about it and they don't think chump blocking is a real option. But usually it's a little bit more complicated than this. Right. It'll be there will be a few more units on board. It's a more complicated board state, but they it's it's too hard to come up with a plan to win the game even though it's basically still the same principle. Mm-hmm. And, I've do, and I do the same thing myself. Sometimes it's just like, eh, there's too much stuff, I'm just going to make them have it. But it's a very clear plan to chump block twice, which gains you six life each time, essentially, uh, and, and attack three times in the air. Um, and it's more risky to... Let, let's say they didn't have a fast spell. Would you double block then? I feel like you do, don't you? Or would you say no? I don't know. I think it's a toss-up. It seems like if you chump block and then they play another unit, uh, I guess they would have to play a six-power unit. Yeah, they would. So I that's interesting because it almost feels like blocking or not blocking leads to very similar results. And so I don't yeah. even know how you decide besides on like, mood or weather <laughs> like yeah which you yeah. do in that situation i don't know i don't know but it's not it's not an it's not an easy question like it should be an easy question right it's like you double luck yeah you kill the thing that has the potential to kill you but then uh maybe they play but then they play another unit you still can't kill them next turn mm-hmm. and then if they now you've opened yourself up to the possibility if they draw a trick or a weapon now they can kill you because you don't have anything to block but so the Grotov, you would, but the Grotov's, but the Grotov's favorite is gone. But now you've got this other problem. But then also, what what, what I'm saying, uh, if you chump blocked the Grotov's favored and then they played a unit and then they drew a weapon or something, then they still kill you. They're still right. so they get you in both of those situations. So I don't know because bl- double blocking or or chump blocking it isn't better or worse in that situation. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I do kind of feel like maybe double blocking is the slightly safer move there because you aren't dead to a removal spell then. That's true. You know, because all they have to do is kill your Hellkite and then now you're facing down a Gordas Favored and a Bannerman and you have a Bannerman. Yeah, I think that's true. You are you are opening yourself up to a removal spell in that situation, so it's probably better to double block. Let's say they're Xenon, and they've got eight power, and they attack with their Grodov's favor, and you know they have a fast spell, and they haven't cast it all game, and there hasn't been anything valuable in their void, so you're pretty sure they've got an Immortalize. Then you definitely jump block. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different situations. You know, the fact that you can just change a couple variables in the same basic situation and ha- lead to very different results is just shows how sort of subtle and complicated all of this stuff is and how there's not always one right answer. There's no 
sort of heuristic that really leads to to the to the perfect the perfect solution every single time and you really got to think be thinking about a lot of different factors if you want to play optimally yeah and i yeah. think there's a limit to how optimally you can play there's only so many variables you can reasonably consider um and the more you play and the better you get at the game and the better instincts you develop the less calculations you have to make on each turn because you've encountered similar situations but then i also think that you can get into a a, a sort of a mindset where you you're making calculations automatically and then making mistakes because there are a couple of variables that are different and uh, and and you're not taking those into account because you've played one too many games and you're you're doing too many things automatically at this point. So uh, it's one of the reasons why I think that I play better when I when I am not constantly playing eternal, like because I don't get into a sort of a repetitive tunnel vision way of looking at tactical situations. I'm, I'm a little bit more open to these kind of variables. And I play better defensively when my brain isn't all clogged up with like the way the last 14 games went. <laughs> Where I'm like really looking at things fresh. Uh, and I think it's very difficult because I'm human and I, and I run out of mental energy. I think it's very uh, normal to to start making mistakes when I've when I've played a little bit too much eternal for exactly that reason because I'm not looking at things honestly I'm sort of I'm I'm recognizing starting to recognize patterns when they're not there so you're the final point you wanted to talk about are free attacks what do you I mean do by wanna, that uh, the there's a situation that comes up uh, just constantly uh, and where um, where you or your opponent can make an attack without taking any real risk. Uh, let's say uh, for the first two turns of the game, neither you or your opponent has played. They played first, so uh, when they reach three power, they play a 3-3. Three, three. Let's say it's a Sunset Priest. And on your turn, you reach three power and you play a Swaying Sea Kirin, which is a 2-4. On their turn, they attack. And this is called a free attack because they're not risking anything. You don't have any power open, so you can't play a trick and punish them. You have a choice of either blocking or not blocking, and they have open power, so all of the risk is on you. And I think it's an interesting situation, and it comes up all the time. And it was coming up all the time in this found deck that I keep coming back to, because a lot of the units that I was playing are things like 1-4 Flying Wretched Ravens and 0-5 Fear Stoker Ravens that only get good after I've gotten a discard in. Uh, so I was always having to decide, hey, do I block with my 0-5 Flyer? Because there's no risk to my opponent when I do that, but there is a risk that they've got some damage to follow up with um, or a trick to kill my raven, and all I'm doing is trading my raven for maybe a weak removal spell or a trick. And uh, this happens all the time. And I, I think people tend to err on the side of not blocking there because they don't want to take the risk that their unit will die. Mm-hmm. especially early in the game because we use our life as a resource and it's often correct to use our life as a resource. There's no need to risk our cards if we don't have to. But I, th I don't think it's always correct. I think it depends on whether how, on how much your current game plan, let's say it's that situation where they have the 3-3 three, three and you have the 2-4 swaying seek here. And how much does your current game plan depend on keeping your swaying seek here? Do you have a muster card in hand so that you're going to be able to get a 1-1 later that you might win the game with? 
probably don't block because it's very important that that happens. If you have another similar unit in hand that has that is capable of blocking the 3-3 Sunset Priest and in fact would really, it, let's say it's a 4-4, it would really appreciate the fact that your opponent has already used their removal or trick uh, so that the 4-4 can definitely live, then you probably block because you know you have an answer for the current situation in your hand. How much does it wreck you if the trick ends up being like Granite Coin where they just play, to sit, they play a, a power and finish off your unit and, you ba- and they got a huge amount of value for just that one card? It's another situation where it's not as simple as just saying, eh, I'm not going to block because I have my life as a resource. It might be very valuable to get a trick out of their hand, especially if it's something like draw strength, which isn't very powerful now, but would be very powerful later in the game. This is a little bit off topic, but the way sure. this re- this speaks to me the most is I'm always like the idiot with the 3-3 Sunset Priest in this situation. And okay. I'm like, oh, this is a free attack. Yeah. And then I like attack. And then I realize all this means is they get a free block and get to hit me for two damage. Yes. And then I'm like, well, that was stupid. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's not always a, cr- a correct take the free attack. <laughs> Generally, you have a follow up. Like part of this is that you're, is that the attack with the 3-3 three, three is followed with a thing that keeps them from just smacking you. <laughs> well, that's a big. That's a big assumption. <laughs> that's sort. I was making that assumption this whole time, and I realized it is. It's an unfair assumption. <laughs> it's a free attack in the little bubble of the attack, but no, there's there's large implications. Yeah, there's large there's consequences to that attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another thing is that when you attack, sometimes you're telegraphing that you do have something. I yeah. actually make it a practice. Sometimes, if it's not going to betray anything about my hand to make free attacks, just to sort of keep my opponent making decisions where yeah. they are where they have to figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, and it's not it, only if it doesn't lose me anything. like if it's gonna lose me two health because I, they have a crackback, then maybe I don't do that because it's not worth it. <laughs> then I'm playing mind games and my opponent's just winning the game. Yeah. <laughs> like I win the mind games, but I lose the eternal game. It's not worth it. But also you if you have a fast spell in your hand, uh, sometimes if you make an attack, then your opponent will see that you do. And then whether you do that or not depends on whether you want your opponent to think that you have a fast spell. Because sometimes mm-hmm. you do want your opponent to think that you have a fast spell, uh, but be wrong about what that fast spell is. Those are, that, that, that time exists. That's a pretty heavy mind game, but it is a thing that I sometimes do. Yeah. If I've got like an Immortalize in hand, but I want my opponent to think that I have a trick and be playing around draw strength, I'll, I'll make that attack and, and, and make them think that. So can you just like sum up some sort of just like general rules of thumbs about like when you should block or shouldn't block in those kind of situations? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, it comes back to the overall theme of having a plan to win the game and being farsighted about how the the game is going to go uh, and, and like what the cards in your hand are capable of doing. I think that where I uh, where pe- where where folks get tripped up and where I often get tripped up unless I'm unless I'm thinking along the right lines is thinking about the value of an individual situation. So this comes back to where uh, what I was talking about with with attacking and whether people are doing it enough. It's not re- it's not really about whether you get card advantage off a trade, whether a trade was good, uh, like what you're like 
whether what the value of the cards you're trading are as opposed to the value of your opponent's trades. Uh, it's about the consequences to the game, you know? And so if you're in a situation like we were talking about with the Cinder Dragon or the Dread Hellkite or whatever, uh, the, cons- the consequences to your decisions are whether or not you win the game, which is like two or three turns from now. Um, and it's great if it's that clear. But earlier in the game, when you're deciding whether you want to be putting up a defense or not, you got to think, like, is my, am I in a situation where I'm stabilizing? Or am I in a situation where I can afford to let attacks through because I'm act- I've actually got a stronger aggressive game plan right now? Um, so the overall rule of thumb is, hey, how does this contribute to my plan for winning this game? And how does this affect my opponent's plan for winning this game? Not, is this an individual block uh, a valuable block for me? Or how much individual life does it, uh, uh, does it save? But uh, how does it work into the, into the scheme of things? Does blocking here help me win? Or am I just sort of trying not to lose and I don't have a plan beyond that? Because mm-hmm. I think it's real easy to get into a mindset where you're like, well, I've I've got to block because otherwise I lose. Do you think yeah. that's as true in like the example you had where it's really it's kind of like turn three and you have a three, three and a two, four on board. Thinking about this further, I feel like my general way of thinking about this kind of situation is I look at my unit and I think do I have a plan for this unit in the next few turns? Yeah. And if my next few turns, my plans for the next few turns involve this unit, then maybe I won't chance a block. Yeah. But if I think I have other plans, this unit is really not that important to my plans for the next few turns, then I will block. But I don't know, maybe but as I is... say that, I am... It is. That's the Maybe same just, thing as what I'm saying. It's just not thinking all of the turns down the road. And it's not possible to think all of the turns down yeah. the road because everything changes on every turn. You draw a new card, your opponent draws a new card, you learn what's in their hand, etc. But you're thinking ahead a couple of turns. You're mm-hmm. not just thinking, uh, well, is this a good block in a vacuum? You're thinking, do I need this unit? Do the other cards in my hand uh, give me give me something to do if this unit happens to die? And so that's part of like, uh, deciding whether that blo- whether whether you need to block in that situation. I think it's the same thing as what I'm saying. It's just that there's a limit to how far ahead you can possibly think in a game of Eternal. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to make life hard for anyone playing Eternal. Like, oh, you, you actually should be thinking like you know fourth dimensionally uh, many turns down the road. This is all stuff that is 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 fairly easy to think about once you get into the habit of thinking about it. But I. Like, if you want to have the sort of edge in draft where you're getting into Masters consistently and maybe getting into High Masters and stuff like a lot of people do consistently, like, this is the kind of stuff that we think about. Uh, We're not thinking about, like, hey, is this a good trade in a vacuum? We're thinking about how does this trade work into my plan for the next few turns? Um, So I think it's sort of worth... I think it's worth talking about in those terms, Uh, because even if it's not like something that everyone can immediately do, it's uh, it's it's sort of a habit that you can do start doing almost instinctively, and then your game improves because of it. Yes, no, I agree, and I think one of the things that I've learned doing the podcast and drafting more is 
that as long as you're trying, you're constantly improving and things that I didn't quite understand, say, when I started this podcast, I now just do instinctively. Uh And it's just because I keep thinking about it. And so, you know, and I keep improving. And so it just everything comes to you more naturally. And so now, you know, the things that I struggle with now are much different than the things I struggle with. Because there's always like there's always like a concept and you're like, wow, that's like way beyond me. But the fact is, eventually you'll figure that out. There will still be a concept that you're like, oh, that's like way too, you know, 10 dimensional chess for me. But eventually that'll only be four dimensional chess. And there'll be another 10 dimensional chess concept that you're struggling to even grasp at. That was mostly to say to you, I don't think you were saying anything overly like too complicated because for some people they'll be like, oh, I totally understand that for others. Maybe it'll be another couple months before they fully grasp the concept. But I think being aware of what great players are thinking and doing is a great part of learning how to be better at draft. Yeah, I learn from what uh, what uh, good players do to me, you know, on the battlefield. <laughs> like, like I'll see somebody do something sometimes. And if I understand it, I'll be like, wow, that was that was certainly a very good play. I'll try to do something like that if I'm ever in a similar situation, because that was real good. Mm-hmm. Uh, this happens all the time. So this is kind of exciting. The new set is coming out sometime in February, and so they've released a few cards. So we just thought we'd give our initial impressions um, and sort of what we know about this um, set eight so far. And so I think on the high-level things, it looks like, This is going to be very similar to set five and be a three faction set. It's going to be focused on the five three factions that weren't featured in set five. Mm -hmm. So um, all of the colors that are next to each other. So or all the colors that we got sites for in set seven. So like FTJ, TJP, JPS and so on around the ring. So that's interesting. It does look like we're going to get the five new displays. I think those are kind of backbone cards in set five, like were real reasons to be in a three-color faction. So I thought to start with, um, we could talk about the first display that they um, that they previewed, which is Display of Menace, which is the Fire Primal Shadow display. And it has... Three, three modes like all the displays do. So the first one is deal one damage to each enemy, kill an enemy relic or give relics in your enemy void, void bound, sacrifice a unit to draw two of the top four cards of your deck, put the rest in the bottom. So am I wrong to be slightly underwhelmed with this card so far? No, I also am underwhelmed with it, uh, certainly as a limited card. Unless relics are a major theme in this set, uh, which they might be, we don't know. Uh, right. One one of the one of the modes seems almost useless, especially the part about giving relics void bound. Like relic recursion is not usually a huge thing in <laughs> in limited. <laughs> like that's quite a. I hope it is though. I hope there's some sort of weird recursion armory deck that you can yeah. draft because that sounds like fun. Yeah, uh, it's kind of interesting because I had. The uh, 
not the opposite impression, but I, I feel like that second mode, the relic one, is the mode we have the least information about. Because you could imagine a world where it's good, and then maybe this card is good. Yeah. But that that mode really requires the full context of the set to really understand how useful it is. It does. Dealing one damage to each enemy is a pretty standard thing. It's not very powerful, usually. Uh, there's, it's not often that um, like an opponent will have a whole bunch of one-toughness units, and then something like this will just wipe them out. Mm-hmm. Unless that's the way the set is, you know? If it's a very token-heavy set, then maybe Display of Menace is sometimes really, really good. And it might be because if the the other mode is is sacrificing to draw two cards and dig pretty far into your deck, which is very powerful if you have a lot of things that you can sacrifice. And so if there's a token theme in those colors, then I think that's probably the the mode that is the strongest. But it's also, I mean, it's just a draw card. Um, yeah. Mode. Do you think the fact that you get to look four cards deep makes this better than Devour? Just like if you oh, were yeah. just to compare that third mode with devour so this costs one more it's three colors but you get to look four cards deep yeah i think it's hugely powerful actually there's been similar effects in magic the gathering and they're insanely good even in limited like the the amount of card selection it like you also don't gain life off of this card but it's very it's very strong yeah uh, okay. Like being able to dig past like a couple of sigils or something in limited is so fantastic. You know, like that's why Blurry Chaser is such a good card is that you don't draw sigils. You know, <laughs> it's the, like just scouting is really powerful. This is like a mega scout. Yeah, so maybe this is a good card and paying three is worth it, but it's hard to know. I don't know. I think you have to have a deck that's that's set up for it because sacrificing a unit is not a zero cost thing. Like it's yes. it's it's definitely something where the deck has to be. So I'm hoping that the the set is built in a way where the the you know these these three these these three faction decks do have a lot of synergy support so that a card like this makes sense. Um because like right now, like uh, if if we just sort of plopped this into the current set, it would actually be pretty good because you would have uh, there's a lot of sacrifice fodder in uh-huh. in Stone Scar, you know, like like sacrificing a um a, what's it called a a totem a, to- a totem cindermatoda sacrificing a cindermatoda with this is just fantastic. So I I don't know if it's a, if it's something like that, then then it's fine. That's cool. Yeah. So then the um the other sort of high level thing that we know is strangers are back yeah and it seems like they're going to be a strongly supported theme so they've probably released uh six or seven strangers so far three of them have been common strangers and so we have one in fire one in time one in justice in at the common level but at the rare or higher level it seems like there are strangers in all five colors. So I know you expressed a little bit of concern on discord about strangers. And I also, I actually am more concerned now that I've seen strangers in all five colors. Cause I was hoping that strangers maybe would be limited to like a three faction wedge. And so it would just be one of the five themes as compared to, and maybe it still could be because all the common ones, maybe it's only the common and uncommons are part of a wedge and then rare rare ones go outside of that. 
Could be, um, yeah. Maybe FTJ is the Stranger Wedge. Uh, I would say that Strangers in the past have been a, a five-color um, uh, tribe, so I think that it's probably going to be the same here. Yeah. You know, the thing that made me wonder if it could be different is, in again, to make a, a magic analogy, is Modern Horizons, a recent format in Magic, brought Slivers back, which are sort of the Magic counterpart to Strangers. And Slivers are also a five-color faction, but mm-hmm. in Modern Horizons, they were focused in white and red. And so it, at common and uncommon, almost all the slivers were in white and red. And that was sort of that color pairs theme. And then at higher rarities, they gave like people who wanted to play slivers and constructed, you know, different color slivers. But they were able to make a draft format where it just not everyone ran slivers, but there could be sort of a sliver player. Well, I um, hope that that's that's the kind of thought that went into this that would be nice um Mm -hmm. because uh to to articulate what i'm concerned about with strangers is that because strangers affect uh strangers on both sides of the board playing a stranger is often helping your opponent and it and and picking a stranger out of a pack you have to like think about well is this going to help my opponent more than me like it's weird uh, like if I don't get enough sy- stranger synergy, but I have to play some of these strangers in my deck, if my opponent has more strangers, then they're going to benefit more from my cards than I am from playing them, which feels yes. real bad. And then if strangers are strong enough in this format, then you end up always being in strangers, not because it's necessarily <clears throat> the strongest strategy, but because you're missing out on your opponent's stranger effects by not having strangers in your own deck. So mm-hmm. you're just sacrificing all of this potential power by playing anything but strangers. Yeah. That's the risk, and I'm hoping that that's not how it turns out, uh, and that they've put more thought into it than that. I hope so, um, but I'm worried. Yeah, I will say another point, and I guess we should be clear about this, is it seems like the strangers in this set, so these are Zultan strangers as compared to Miria. So the strangers here, previous strangers were very close to slivers where it was just like all strangers now have endurance when you played your endurance stranger or all strangers have lifesteal or all strangers get plus one plus one these new strangers seem to have this effect where it says when one or more strangers attack do an effect i do think that mitigates your thing a little bit because it's like if you have a stranger it doesn't matter if your opponent has one stranger or 10 strangers. It doesn't really give them that big of an advantage. The fire stranger, covetous stranger, says when one or more strangers attack, the owner creates and draws a treasure trove. So that means if you attack with one stranger, you attack with 10 strangers. You only create a single treasure trove. Right. It's not like if you play a stranger and it gives plus one, plus one to all strangers, then your opponent's board of two, two strangers that they were using to fix their influence is now a rampaging army. Yes, It just draws them one treasure trove. And that seems to be like, so far the three common ones at least, all have that. Like the time one, Magnificent Stranger, when one or more strangers attack, reduce the cost of the top card of their owner's deck by two. Half the time... 
the top card of your deck is a power, so it does nothing to it. Less yeah. than half, but you know, like forty yeah. percent of the time. I have a feel. I have a feeling that that card will will won't affect uh, sigils, and it will affect the the top card of your opponent's deck that has a cost, even though it doesn't say that specifically on the card. You time think? will tell. That's what I think, but <clears throat> I could be wrong. I, I think that's be. why they made it too, so yeah. that it's. <clears throat> Just slightly better than a journey guide. Yeah. Um, yeah, it could be. You, uh, you could be right. We'll see. Uh, yeah. But also, there's another thing that it's none of the. This isn't true for any of the common strangers. But I think that all of the strangers that we've seen of higher rarities have an effect on strangers as a whole, but also an effect that only that stranger has, only that card has. Yeah. Which is another thing that makes it. Like, well, this does benefit the whole board and does benefit your strangers, but not as much as me having this card in the first place. Like, the legendary blue one, when it attacks, makes a 3-3 dragon. Uh, Your opponent's strangers don't get that ability at all. They get whatever the other ability is, which I forget right now, but it's it's not as good as creating a 3-3 dragon. Exactly. So, I, I do think, you know, there's reason to be concerned, but it does seem, at least from this initial design, that there's also room to be sort of optimistic that they... It's and not if it, going to be as snowball as it could. And if it works, then it's a unique draft environment that's really interesting. You know, if they balance it well, then that's different than anything else because you are playing cards that affect your opponent's cards directly, and that's kind of cool. Um, if it, if it, you know, if it doesn't end up being busted. So if, it, and you got to take risks when you're designing cards for card games, and you got to take risks when you're designing limited environments. Otherwise, it's boring. So let's just hope that they they got it right. All right, and then the final card is sort of not really related to any theme, um, but it's kind of an interesting card that they previewed, and that's Touch of Purity, which is a two-justice fast spell. Give one of your units life steal, then give a unit, weapon, or spell in your hand life steal. Yeah, and I just an was wondering card. what your initial thoughts just on general power level of this card is. My very first initial thought is that it's totally unplayable. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But I could be wrong, uh, and it's uh, and it's entirely because this doesn't affect the board at all. It gives it gives you life. It is a card that gives you life and potentially gives you a bunch of life, and you just don't play those in limited, no matter how yes. much life they give you. But that mm-hmm. is all. That's all it does. So there would have to be some sort of synergy with life steal, sort of like you know Xenon used to have uh, with uh, life, know, force. life force. Um, and then if there's enough cards that, that ping off of the gaining life and you can give cards that don't normally have lifesteal, lifesteal, then that, that fast could, speed, that fast speed, that could be really interesting. If you can give a relic weapon lifesteal and then attack with it multiple times and it's triggering some life force like unit, uh, as well, that sounds great. So we don't, we don't know what this card is like until we see the environment that it exists in. Yeah, it's also tricky because unfortunately the only faction with Xenon in it is Fire Time Shadow, which does not seem which could which doesn't no. play Touch of Purity. No. So no, it seems definitely. unlikely that it's gonna be life force, which is so far just a Xenon mechanic. They could but we don't know any of the mechanics of the new yeah. set other than strangers, so we have no idea. They could have come up with anything at this point. Yeah. Like something so. that isn't life force, but somehow pings off life steal. So I don't know what that would be because it <laughs> seems like it has to be life force. But they're also very creative over there. They've they've floored us on the last few sets as far as introducing new mechanics. So hey, maybe they did it again. I don't know. 
So it's yeah, funny. So it's funny that they've started off of off the spoiler season with strangers that we've seen before instead of whatever the new the new me- new mechanic is. But yeah. presumably they have some kind of plan. Yeah. Well, I think people at least in a constructed environment we're very uh, we're clamoring for new strangers yeah that's fair yeah yeah it's not often that you get to play strangers and they are a super cool uh faction both in terms of mechanics and like the lore of the game if you're into that so so for sure bring strangers back yeah by all means i mean i remember how excited everyone was to see slivers again in magic because they brought them back twice at least yeah, so that's uh, yeah, that's interesting. I I like the comparison of Touch of Purity to just like a Water of Life kind of spell, which makes it seem not very good. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, it can't be better than that, you know. Like, let's say it gains you ten life. Do you put it in your deck? I don't know. Probably not. Still, yeah. that's sort of all we know about the new set. I'm sure by next week we'll have a little bit more. So, if there's anything interesting that leads to some discussion we'll talk about it if not we might just wait for the whole set to release but i think we're going to end our show there so once again a thank you to all our patrons for making the show a success and for those of you who are not patrons a reminder to give us a five-star rating and review on itunes stitcher or google play join us in our discord you'll find a link below in the show notes or on any of raven dragon's reddit posts and speaking of Reddit posts, a reminder to give a thumbs up to all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts about the show. It's really appreciated, and it really gets the, the word out on the show. And hey, feel free to leave a comment in there, too. And don't forget to send all your 7-win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Have a good night. Bye. Cool. I crushed that one, I think. Yeah, that felt good. Yeah.